0: From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. It's Black History Month, so we're spending some time with a woman who's been celebrating black voices and traditions for more than 25 years. Valerie Tutson is the executive director and festival director for Rhode Island Black Storytellers, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting the awareness, appreciation, and application of Black storytelling. Welcome, Valerie.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: To start with, I know you were the founder of the Rhode Island Black Storytellers back in 1998, so tell us how it started.
1: Well, the first thing I have to say is I'm actually a co-founder, and that's a really important distinction because of how we started. I had just come back from traveling in South Africa, and the Rhode Island Foundation had some money because they wanted to create programming that was going to celebrate black arts and artists and community. So I went over to Ramona Bass Colabay, who's another local storyteller. And I said, Ramona, there's there's money. Maybe we could kick off the year of black arts and arts programming and artists with a black storytelling festival. And she said, Well, if we're gonna do that, we need to have an organization. So then we sat there drinking our tea, said, How about Rhode Island? black storytellers. And then we cracked up because that's ribs, which is, (laughs) right, exactly, like the perfect name for a black arts and cultural organization. So that's kind of how we began. And then we just, you know, called our friends who were also working professional black storytellers, Len Cabral, Rochelle Garner-Coleman, Abigail Ifatola-Jefferson. And then a little later, we got Melody Thompson and Rafini, So you mentioned Len Cabral. Um, For
0: people who don't know, tell us about him. He was one of
1: your inspirations? He was completely one of my inspirations. Len Cabral um, has been telling stories in the community for 45, 40 years or so, at least 40 years. So probably 45 years. And when I got here to go to Brown University, I walked into the Brown Bookstore. And Len Cabral was telling stories along with Bill Harley oh, wow. and also a Marilyn Murphy Mearden. And my friends crack up all the time because I literally made them sit down in the Brown University bookstore, our first <laughs> week of classes, <laughs> and listen to these storytellers. In fact, I remember vividly one of the stories that they told that day that made such an impact on me. What was the story about? You want to hear it? Essentially, it's this. There was a young man who had lived overseas for a long time and then decided he wanted to return to the village where he had lived for a long time. And he decided that when he went back to this village that he wanted to bring the greatest gift he could imagine bringing. And he remembered that in the village, they had a storyteller, which was great. But here on this side of the world, people had new technology. Nowadays, we might say it was a iPad or a smartphone or something, but it was a television. And he thought, I'm going to bring the people in the village a television. This television will have so many stories that they can access. So we worked it all out and got a television and brought it across you know, the, the water, and they travel it all the way to the village. And even the, the chief gets the electricity and the generator going, and they start up the television. And everybody in the village comes to watch the TV. The first night, everybody's there. The second night, everybody's there. The third night, people start wandering away. And the storyteller goes and starts a fire. And he notices that over time, people leave the television and they go and they gather around the fire where the storyteller is telling stories. And he hears the people laughing and having a good time. And the man says to the chief, I don't understand this. Here I've brought the newest technology, this this television that has stories from all over the world. It knows more stories than your storyteller could ever know. And the chief says, that might be true. But our storyteller knows us
0: mm, that's awesome and and it, it brings up the power of storytelling yeah. like, like why do humans react so much when you tell a story?
1: I think it does two things one it either helps us see ourselves and know ourselves in a more deep way right so we see our own humanity or our own foibles or our own all of those things and then the other piece of that is it also opens us up to really getting to know other people and other parts of the world Mm. and the other way that people live.
0: So I know FundaFest ran from January 19th to February 3rd, and I want to know more about the festival. But first, tell us where the word Funda comes from and what it means. Mm.
1: Funda is a Zulu word. And if you recall, I told you I had just come back from South Africa and I'd been there for, you know, almost six months. And huh. so yeah, yeah. Every once in a while I would give myself a sabbatical and I'd just go leave, you know? <laughs> you can do that when you work for yourself. You can just take as much time off as you, you have want a good to. Boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If only I got paid for my time <laughs> off, you know? <laughs> But anyhow, I had been in South Africa, and I've been back and forth many times. But this particular time, I had been in Soweto, and they had an art center there that was called the Funda Center. Mm. And Funda means to learn. It means to learn. It means to read. and, And it looks like fun. So when we came back and we were kind of tossing ideas around about what should we call our festival, I suggested Funda. For all those reasons, you know, storytelling is our most ancient way of teaching and learning. And it's fun. So the festival
0: has been going on for 26 years now, right? <laughs> yes. So what what do you feel like it has accomplished?
1: Well, I think it has helped— people remember the power of storytelling. Even as technology morphs and changes and even as we explore using technology in different ways, fundamentally, we are still about the intimate power of the human voice in community. Hmm. Yeah.
0: And what's left to do? Where would you like to see the festival go in the future?
1: One of our goals is... This is a simple goal in Rhode Island, one would think, but I'd love for Funda to be in every one of our cities and towns in some kind of way. And also for Funda, you know, to kind of—it is, but more intentionally for it to be kind of the capstone of the work that we do all year. It started out kind of as a way for those of us who were working Black storytellers to fill in that space between Martin Luther King Day and then launch people into Black History Month. And we did that on purpose because most of us were working our butts off during Black History Month. So it, was, it wasn't it was like, oh yeah, we're going to put on our festival in Black History Month. No, <laughs> we were out there making as much money and all over the country as we could as solo artists. So it launched our community into recognizing Black History Month. And now we've been doing programs more consistently through the year. So we do Funda Story Camp during school vacations and during the summertime. We're going to be launching a training program. So what I'd like to see is that Funda and all of these other programs are continue to be woven together and that Funda is the big celebration and the launch and the culmination. Can it be all those things? I'm I'm thinking of Sounds it as good. like water whooshing like that. <laughs>
0: I like it. I like it. So give us a few examples of the performances at the festival.
1: This year, oh my gosh, we had performers aged five to 82 years old on the wow. stages over the over the three weekends of Fundafest. Five was my own daughter, making her solo storytelling debut with her teacher, Rafini, beside her. So that was really cute as part of the youth performance. So we had a program that was done by student performers, Mm. and they were wonderful. They did some retellings of folktales, and then they did some pieces from Black History. We also had, for the second year in a row, a partnership um, with Sarah Lopes, Simply Sarah, and she does an outspoken project and this year she had all women spoken word artists mm. which was really beautiful. We had David Gonzalez come. He's a storyteller that I've known I I got to know early on in my career and have always just loved his work. He's a fine storyteller. He's a fabulous poet and he's got music in his bones. So he did a really beautiful Several performances with us. And we also had a one-woman show of Bessie Coleman by April Hmm. Armstrong. Yeah. And then, you know, then we had an amazing night of hip-hop that we called Urban Legends. And that was really fun, you know, to have hip-hop legends like Masta Ace here right alongside one of our older storytellers, our mentors, Teju Ologboni, who was a part of the Black Arts Movement and the spoken word movement in the 60s. And there they are kind of sharing the stage together together.
0: We'll have more with Valerie Tutson after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. You were recently on Generation Rising on Rhode Island PBS, and there were a couple of things you said that I'd love to hear more about. You said...
1: We've always been really clear that other people are putting our stories out in ways that don't always make us look good. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, we ourselves get caught up in the trauma stories of what it means to be black in this world. And those are very important stories. However, we also, again, want to show... The breadth of our experience. I love that somebody captured what I actually said. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's power in who tells the story of who they are, and one of the things that I love about um, this. Principle of Kwanzaa, Kuchi Chagalia, which means self determination. We're going to name ourselves. We're going to define ourselves. We are going to put our own experience out there in our own way. It's just kind of natural that if you have a lived experience, you are the expert of what that experience is. And people make decisions all the time about what sells and what's going to be newsworthy. And that's not always the best stories that people need to hear. They are the stories that are going to be sensational. And that's problematic. So there's that piece. The second piece you asked about was the trauma piece. We are spending a lot of time in the world, in our nation right now, talking about trauma. We are spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources, resources capturing traumatic experiences. We are spending a lot of time and energy elevating experiences of people who are victims of violence or perpetrating violence or barely escaping violence. And I think sometimes we don't fully understand the power of the words— And the images and what they literally do to our physiology. You and I are similar age, so you might remember those signs that used to be all over the place when we were little that said children learn what they live. Mm. And I would flip it even to say children live what they learn. Mm right? That there's this reciprocity that happens. The more you see violence, the more you think violence is a normal thing. The more you experience violence, the more you have a physiological response, which nowadays we call that as a trauma-informed response, right? And so we get caught up in this loop thinking that that is kind of normal and it's killing us. It is killing us. So one of the things that has always been vital to the work that we do at RIBS is to, even when we're telling hard stories, not to leave us there, hmm. right? One of my mentors said is George Bass, Ramona's late husband, who was the founder of Rights and Reason Theater, when I was taking you know, my very first course at Brown – about Afro-American folk traditions and the aesthetics of change, blah, blah, blah. And he was talking about how our stories change over time or how our music changes over time. Like, first, our artistry or our response comes from what is happening in the moment and how we see it, right? And that in itself can be healing to the person speaking, can be healing to the person hearing. But there comes a point in your work or your consciousness where you— hopefully say this because it is going to be heard or seen or felt by somebody else means i have a responsibility to how that person's going to receive this so i can't leave my people in the dark i can't leave the audience in a traumatized place mm. i it's like the old folk tales yeah you go into the woods and yeah the wolf is there but you kill the wolf <laughs>
0: While you were on Generation Rising, you and your colleague, car Marlon Carey, uh, told some stories. Here's Marlon Carey telling a new version of Hamlet. Let's take a listen.
1: Hamlet's father died that it was most peculiar when his uncle Claudius became the new ruler. He married Gertrude, who was Hamlet's mama. Dude married his sister-in-law. Ain't that some drama?
0: So uh, why is telling stories like this matter? What's he doing there?
1: He's making an old story accessible and contemporary and still in the in the way the Bard was doing it back then. The Bard was using language that was, you know, rhythmical for the people of the time. In in many ways, it's still kind of in the tradition of that. And, you know, Marlon is just an amazing artist. Adore him.
0: And here's a quick clip of your story. It's about rare Rabbit and Dog who are in love with the same woman— Dog has just told Rabbit he wishes his voice is sweeter so he could sing to his love interest. Let's listen to what comes next.
1: And then Bror Rabbit said, hey, Dog, I got something right here in my pocket that will change your voice forever. Bror Dog said, you do? (laughs) Yes, I do, Rabbit said. Well, what is it, what is it? Oh no, I can't tell you what it is, Rabbit said. But if you follow my instructions, I promise you, you will have a brand new voice. Dog said, all right, all right, uh, what I got to do? Brough Rabbit said, first thing you need to do, dog, is close your eyes.
0: So what happened next?
1: (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Dog closed his eyes and he opened his mouth and Brough Rabbit stuck his wrench right in there and gave a quick twist on those vocal cords and then the dog let out a howl and a roof, roof, And that's why dogs bark and howl to this very day and still chase rabbits.
0: <laughs> so where does this story come from?
1: <laughs> that story comes from a collection that was edited by Arna Bon Temps and Langston Hughes, hmm. the book of Negro folklore. And it was collected by a lot of folks, one of whom was Zora Neale Hurston. So... You know, early on in the 30s and 40s, people were collecting the folk traditions that black folks had had been telling for a long time. Why is it important to keep stories like this alive? In some ways, as I think about this, I'm like, oh, this is conceivably a violent story, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of is. But it gives us some distance to that violence because it also makes us laugh. And we've got these characters, but we can recognize jealousy right? And we can recognize what potentially can happen with a love interest gone wrong. But these stories are teaching stories. So now you know why the dog says what the dog does and mm, what are you going to do? You know, there's so many lessons in this particular story. I was at a school and oftentimes kids, when they hear a story like this, will say, is that a true story or is that a real story? And I say, you know, we ask the wrong question. The question we need to ask with a story like this is what do we learn from this? And that's what I was taught by the storytellers that I met in Ghana. What do we learn from this?
0: So I understand you're launching a storytelling training program later this year. Can you tell me more about that? Yes,
1: So we're looking for people who love storytelling. Maybe they're already artists. They might be poets. They might be spoken word artists. They might be musicians. They might be teachers. They might be librarians. Those are often the folks who initially get drawn into storytelling. But people who would really like to figure out, hey, I'd like to be able to do this with more confidence. I'd like to be able to go into schools or libraries or into my community. We're still a relatively small small group at the Rhode Island Black Storytellers, and we get requests that we can't meet because we don't have enough people who feel as if they could go do an hour-long program to 300 kids in an auditorium or, you know, go into a corporation and speak to their people during Black History Month.
0: And if people are interested, uh, where could they
1: find out more information? They can go right to our website, which is ribsfest.com. .org, and they can sign up to get on the list. And we will be doing some informational sessions soon, and we'll be getting some intakes from people and launching the program Probably well, by now probably. It's already almost spring, isn't it? It is. So late spring. <laughs> Valerie Tutson, thank you so
0: much for joining us today.
1: So welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: You can watch the Generation Rising episode with the Rhode Island Black Storytellers at ripbs.org. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org/passport. That's ripbs.org/passport.